1: The Night Light everybody. Thanks for sharing your evening with us. We really appreciate it. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. Please check his website out. It's nativestorytellers.com. It's an amazing way of preserving history, far better than our textbooks I fear. So uh, do check it out. Mark has an incredible Incredible show tonight. He has a very special guest. I'm so excited because this is one of my favorite people and 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 one of my absolute favorite topics. I can't wait to hear where they go with it. So I'm going to let Mark get started right away. Here you go, Mark.
2: Yeah. Hey Barbara, how are you?
1: Doing well. Doing well.
3: Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to uh, remind the listeners that. Uh, Friday, as well as th- throughout the weekend, they have the summer solstice events at America's Stonehenge and the Serpent Mound. So I just uh, um, want want to keep everyone, oh, uh, uh, yeah, you know, just uh, reminded about that and. Let's see. I think we have a little tech issue there. Okay, we're back. Um, And you know, most of our shows focus on what the guests have observed or tested. Uh, You you and I have been to uh, several of the places that have been featured on our shows, and we know they exist. We have had guests like uh, Jason Jarrell, who have reviewed a lot of the reputable documentation about giants. Uh, We even have photographic evidence in uh, Dr. Don Dragu's Mounds for the Dead, Uh, so we don't need to destroy any more uh, mounds. Uh, We know giants were here. Uh, But tonight, uh, we're going to be dealing with a topic that is less tangible, or observable, uh, but is very uh, plausible, and the, the information is documented. Um, and I'm talking about Atlantis, and Gary Wayne is our returning guest. And uh, though his magnificent book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy, does focus a lot on the giants, it covers the evolution of societies and how they became corrupt. Corrupted uh, by Interactions with giants Uh, Of course one of the earliest societies Is is Atlantis Um, So I better give our guest A bio Uh, Gary Wayne is the Author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy and founder Of the website uh, Genesis 6 Conspiracy He is Deservedly in in-demand radio guest is a self-proclaimed Christian contrarian. Uh, Barbara and I are establishment contrarians, so we'll be monitored by some government agency tonight and probably some churches. Uh, and that Haley, from a couple weeks ago, will be getting me into trouble with the mainstream archaeologists. And then there's the Major league baseball fiasco I found myself embroiled in uh but I'm this doing it for years, Richard's boys.
3: Way. Yeah.
2: Uh I'm I doing it for Richard's to boys.
3: Do with
2: that. <laughs> uh it but it, it's it's worth it. And hopefully by tomorrow I'll be straightened out. Um it's uh it's been a rough week and it's only Tuesday, but that's uh usually the way things uh, go, um, but it, anyhow, uh, hi Gary, how are you?
4: I am uh, doing just fine and uh, so happy to rejoin you on your show and with Barbara, and uh, sorry to hear you're having uh, some <laughs> push back on some of the things that you discuss and, and cover, I think that comes with the territory but sometimes it pours so to speak (laughs) and uh so yeah yeah, just make sure you're navigating the waters and it'll be it'll be fine
2: (laughs) yeah yeah i think uh i think a lot of people are just in like uh arc like we were talking about there there, there, there's no rudder we're just we're just uh going with the tide (laughs) on we're just trying to find that little piece of dry land but you know we're getting there but yeah um uh, yeah, before you know since we're going to be uh focusing a lot on atlantis um yeah you know, it's you know going back into deep antiquity um it, 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 we might want to start off with uh it, it, Having a, a better understanding of maybe how the ancients uh, kept uh, track of time. You know, you get these, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a few examples of aging in the Bible. It's, you know, like Methuselah was, uh, you know, nearly a thousand years old uh you know if you go by uh you know, the traditional uh biblical timekeeping uh you know the universe is uh like six thousand years old. So did Methuselah live like almost one sixth of the in entire uh uh existence of you know the universe uh, you know, I've always wondered about that, but you know, you've also argued that it, there's also kind of like a, an implied passage of time. You know, very early on in, you know, like the first uh, couple passages in Genesis, so it, uh, maybe we need to understand that uh, concept of time first.
4: Sure, it's a it's a good place to start and. You know, when people look at what the Bible says, they tend to not look at what the Bible says in a lot of cases. They tend to listen to what many people say it says, which is why I'm contrarian, is because, you know, I tend to uh, look at things from a from a different perspective than what standard dogma may look at things, but I verify things myself. And so when you do that, and you actually do your own research and, and try and verify uh, some of the things that are said, you start to look at uh, some of that dogma and say, well, you know, that doesn't that doesn't really sound right. It doesn't really match up sort of what the Bible says, because there'd be way too many consistencies if one accepted that sort of dogma. So when you, you're talking about Methuselah and uh, with the accounting of a 6,000-year history, In your comparison is is so um, sort of visual and and sort of encapsulates it that he would be like one-sixth of the whole age of the universe. But I'm not convinced that the Bible actually says that uh, the earth is only 6,000 years old. In fact, uh, I would say that what the Bible does tell us is that the lineage back To Adam would be about six thousand years, but that doesn't mean that the universe um, or the Earth is only six thousand years old. It's sort of just one of those implied, assumed sort of doctrines. But if you go back to days four through six, you know, you get get this really odd verbiage in Genesis one twenty-seven where it says that uh, Mel and uh, female created in plural which is very very strange and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second says to replenish the earth and of course a lot of people say well replenish just means fill the earth well that's one possible translation but you have two possible translations there and replenish even in the time of the translators of the king james version uh, meant to refill uh, and even though you could translate it both ways it's not a uh, sort of a last hundred years sort of understanding so it's very odd that King james uh, uh, version translators would choose the word replenish but other translations of the modern english just say failure but what you have is is a beginning of irreconcilable differences between the creation of day four and day six and i'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because i want to get to genesis 1 1 to 1 2 but i'm just sort of setting the groundwork here and so that if you have so many differences in terms, in, in including the, um, the, what's uh, I'm looking for the right word here, in terms of the uh, layout, in terms of how the step-by-step creation happens, those are completely different than they are in Eden than they are in the days for, you know, one through six account And you have male and, and female being created plural, and told to roam and multiply and, and, and cover the earth, but you have Adam being created in single, and uh, being planted in, in Eden as an agrarian, and then sometime later, Eve is created, and down the road, you have Cain, uh, after a, a, Adam and Eve are, are ostracized from Eden, is going to find a wife in Nod, and It's just a place already, which makes no sense, and to build a city. And of course, the question is who and where does the wife come from? And you get into all of these uh, irreconcilable differences. And I just covered a few of them. And again, for people who may want a step-by-step blow on on the differences between days four through six and the Eden account, uh, get a hold of me through my website and I'll send you that document. And if that's the case, that these are two different creations because I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself, then you have a small gap. We don't know how big it is and how long a day actually might be. Some people believe a thousand years, but again, that's Hmm. a a bit speculative using uh, some metaphors later on in the book for a thousand years possible. But you would have at least a gap of a thousand years between days four and six to the creation of Adam and then um going forward from there and as you move back with that replenished comment if you go back to genesis 1 1 to 1 2 where it says you know in the king james version in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of god moved upon the face of the waters you have a couple different ways you can translate that And uh, so the meaning that the translators are using as they take take the Old Testament from Hebrew into English or Greek into English for the New Testament is as many, and particularly in Hebrew, the words have, in Hebrew, the original words have alternate possible meanings. So you have to apply the right meaning for the narrative. And sometimes that, that isn't always, in my opinion, uh, done correctly. So the first thing is is that you have uh, uh, in the beginning God created the heaven and so we have heaven and we have earth completely created. It's pretty straightforward. But it, then we move into Genesis, verses, Genesis 1, 1 verse 2 and it says, and the earth was without form and void. And the word and comes in. And that's not a Hebrew word anywhere there's no Hebrew word there. It's just interjected by the translators to sort of make sense of that first line. Uh, But in the first verse where it has, where God created the heaven and earth, you do have a Hebrew word there for and, but not where you begin in verse two where it says and the earth. And that word is, is in verse one is F, which means an object of a verb, which has no correlation to the English word that they're using to begin it. Now, other translations will use not and, but now. And what they're trying to imply here, I think, is, is not only to, to connect Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, but you get an implied time variation, like there's a, a time space, and we don't know how big that time space was. And so you move into the next word that is rather problematic or intriguing or interesting, whatever, however you want to describe that. And that's the word was. The earth was without form. And that's mm. the Hebrew word haya, which means to exist or to become or to come to pass or to come into being. And again, that's why some of the modern English translations will have an anecdote, uh, will have a, a, a footnote, above the page will say that or it could be translated the earth became form and void so now you even have some of the translators putting an anecdote in there and they're saying there's two ways of translating that and so one begins to wonder whether or not the standard dogma has this right and so you have this and that, that's put in at the beginning that has a pause, and now you have was that can be translated either became or was. And it's it's, it's either or in it that it came into existence, except that verse 1-1 says the earth was already created. Now the next word that, that sort of builds on this whole concept and what's going on between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and how long is that gap, is that Uh, Most people would understand that as the gap theory. I would call it the renewal of the earth theory, uh, because you have Psalms 104.30 that says, you know, thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. And so as you move forward in verse 2, you have the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, which I think Psalms 104.30 is talking about. And that's when you have a renewal of the face of the earth. So it's suggesting that the, the Earth was created, there's a time space. It became form and 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 became without form and void. And then the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes along and renews the the Earth. So now when you get into the word form, this is where it really starts to get interesting for me as being um, kind of nerdy, Sean uh trying to understand the different layers that's going on in, in the bible is it says without form and that's the hebrew word tohu and that defines uh, that means uh desolation or desert or worthless or chaos just as you have in the polytheist religions this chaos that is calm for for creation so again i think there's a parallel polytheist account that's a that's similar to what Genesis uh, 1 is talking about that, and I cover that off in a chapter in my book. But that's a different rabbit hole. So you have now uh, a possibility where the world became a des- desolation, a desert, worthless, and in chaos. And what's really odd about that is if you roll forward to Isaiah 45:18, it says, God created the earth not in vain, but to be inhabited. And, of course, that word vain is also tuhu. So it says when you, when you insert that word, it didn't create the world void, but to be inhabited And so when we look at that in comparison with Genesis 1-1, when God created the heaven and earth, and it's showing it as void, and Isaiah says he doesn't create anything that is without form and desolate, He creates things to have people live in, and God in his words and his commands, things just happen. So there's no need to have a dead uh, sort of earth. And then you have the next word, which is void, which is the Hebrew word buhu. And that means empty, ruin, and waste. So now you've got this, and the earth was uh, without form, was desolate, desert, worthless and chaos and void, empty ruin and a waste, and of course waste sounds and ruin sounds like something happened to it, right? Mm-hmm. So as you look at the two possible translations, I'm, you know, I'm good either way, but I'm looking at this as being more of a building case where you have an earth that was destroyed And so the next question is, is what caused it? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where the angelic rebellion fits then in days one through six, which is going to um, continue shortly thereafter. We're just in verses one, one and one, two here. So, and then what's going on here is that um, you have the word and that's used uh, in Genesis one, two, and. The earth was without form. You look at that same application in verse three and verse four, and the other verses that follow. Where there's the word "and," and again, there's no Hebrew word there. Uh, it's just a filler by the translations to make sense in English for us in terms of how we speak and read. And that's when you know God says something, and there became light. Right? Okay. So it's a consequence. It happens after. And so if you use that same application where they're using the filler back in the first example, it means something happened after the Earth was uh, created uh, and the heavens were created. So I think, again, it's all pointing back to something that happened. So then if that's the case, and we already have one case rolling forward in Isaiah 45 where it suggests a renewal of the Earth and this uh, gap of of we don't know how long, is there any uh, support in the Bible? And I won't go through all of them, but I'll give just a couple which are kind of super appropriate for understanding the age of the earth and and, and the flood and everything else as we might understand it. Job 8.8 talks about a former age and about that we know nothing and uh, that our days are but a shadow, which is going to be an interesting sort of comparative to what, is talked about in, in in atlantis as as we move on a little bit later so but former age and when just to interject there's a lot of uh, speculation out there that job is an antediluvian book uh the standard dating is somewhere from about 1100 to 1500 bc but the language in job and its history is questioned by a lot of other people and they would put that in an antediluvian uh, writing or before the flood that is somehow um, regained and added into the Bible. I, I can go either way on that one. Um, but the former age, if it's an antediluvian writing, then it's talking about an age before, and that's why I throw that in. Um, but just so that we understand, uh, let's put in Job 33 as well, where it also talks about a for, former time of desolation and waste.
3: And
4: and that former time seems to be of desolation, seems to be talking about duhu, buhu. And if we look at former, as we take that back to Hebrew, that's rishon, which means first beginning or first time, which again has sort of an antediluvian and Egyptian connotation to it for the first time or before the flood, um, and, or Zeptepi, as they would call it in, in the Egyptian religion mm-hmm. and history and mythology. And then the word time or age goes back to the word dower in both cases, which means uh, age or time. So first time is a significant sort of word that sort of correlates to how old is the history before the flood. And so we have an, you know, a couple of examples in Job. And what where that intermixes in the New Testament, just to give uh, one from each, is you have two Peter through, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It's an interesting account where it says, you know, from, you know, talking about from the beginning of creation, that's two seconds, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And from the beginning, if you take that back to Greek, that's the first state or, or the first time. Just as in the beginning in Hebrew in the first line is Rasheed, which is first time or first place, which is the same thing that the former time was talking about and defining. So you have this consistency that runs through the Bible, seemingly on this topic. And, and then it goes on and it says that the world that was uh, over- overflowed with and then perish. Uh, and
3: then
4: that's in verse 6. Well, everybody thinks that's referring to the flood that happens in, you know, beginning in Genesis 6. Well, maybe not so, because this is saying that this world was in the beginning, it perished. Well, the earth didn't perish in the flood of Noah. It survived and the survivors survived and animals survived and plants started growing after the waters receded. The earth was not destroyed or perished. What it was, if you read Genesis one one to one two as being becoming void and formless, and possibly destroyed in an angelic rebellion, where they used all of these supernatural weapons that would have destroyed the earth, just as we get those accounts coming out of the the him, Hindu uh, religions for the best examples. And I think people might know what I'm talking about without spending too much time on that. So we have a significant amount of of scripture that is supporting an idea that we don't know how the world is. And you have one gap that's a possibility between day six and day seven. And then you have where between one one and one two is you could have billions of years that are separating uh, the original creation of the earth. Then whatever happens with the angelic realm. And then the rebellion and then a renewal Beginning in verse 2 and 3 And so we don't know how big that gap is So when people automatically Assume that the world is 6,000 years old they're only Really saying is as we know The lineage from Adam to Today is about 6,000 years And the rest is open to speculation
2: Okay, That's What you're saying about This passage of time is very interesting i i i i don't think most people are really aware of it just, it, it, it needs to be discussed
4: most people just accept yeah most people just accept what is stated which is standard sort of dogma but the dogma isn't always what the bible says and i would also point that There's very little prophecy that's taught in churches, and there's very little things about prehistory taught in churches, and there's practically nothing taught about the giants and how they impacted the flood. So, And that's because in seminary schools in the last few hundred years, they basically said, we're not going to talk about that. But all of what I'm talking about now was standard understanding amongst the ancients. And the original church fathers and the Jewish people, so you have this consistency of understanding that somehow has changed into a new dogma in the last couple hundred years.
2: Yeah, it's it, it just it, it, you know you just I I think probably most people are looking at you know those first uh, few passages as everything was done within twenty four hour. Uh, like 6 24-hour days and uh yeah you know, god took a, a break on a, a Sunday and um yep. then everything yeah you know, the dinosaur showed up and not followed not too long by adam and it's well, it, it just think, just it it just it, yeah. i i i thought it was just very important and I, and for you to uh lay that out
4: Yeah, and I was just going to say, and I'm good either way. This days four through six with the Eden account, I'm a little more dogmatic on it because I don't believe the Bible is in. But I can read uh, the first chapter of Genesis um, as the you know the dogma you know would say, or I can look at it from the what's coming out of Hebrew and say, now how does it fit with what we know about what. else the bible says and i think it fits a little bit better where the angelic rebellion is and also where dinosaurs would fit in and then also what science is telling us about how old dinosaurs are because if you have this unlimited sort of gap and understanding that when i say unlimited i do understand that even secular science says the world is 14 to 17 billion years old uh, which isn't that old um, when you think about things in, in sort of a, a larger sort of perspective and how long it takes to develop things, that's a very, very short time frame, which kind of works against evolution because it becomes mathematically impossible. But now, uh, now I'm getting down a, another rabbit hole. But I do think that the dinosaurs fit a little bit better into uh, between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 from what we're learning about science. And then what the other thing is that I would suggest is that the dinosaurs seem to be what I would call a preferred being uh, of the watchers who were the governors of the earth and uh, the ones who rebelled um, probably before uh, the the renewal of the earth and continued with the rebellion and trying to bring humankind down after the creation of the Adamites. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at the watchers, they are uh, a certain segment of angels that Daniel 4 refers to uh, three times and and as you take that back to Hebrew in terms of what their role was is they're not only ministers but they also bring messages but messages of governance and authority for kings so it's a, it's a governorship just as the watchers out of first Enoch and I
3: understand mm-hmm. that
4: that's not in the canon but uh we get an understanding out of there that they're the ones who ruled the many civilizations of the earth before the flood and what's important about that is that isaiah 6 talks about a certain class of angels which are 6 winged angels that are seraphim uh, i am being male plural and or meaning ones in the seraph which is the singular um these are the ones that are Working as ministers in the throne before God, in with the stones of fire, and uh, actually seemingly have some sort of ministerial capabilities because one of those seraphs takes a stone and touches out of the in front of the altar and touches Isaiah's lips and takes away all of his sins. So it's acting almost in a priest-like role, you know. Mm-hmm. Just as Lucifer had nine stones, whereas as the uh, the Levite priest had twelve stones on their vest, which is to me, again, signifying that um, there's a priestly aspect to what Satan originally was of Hillel, as Isaiah 1412 translates from Hebrew as. And we also have Satan as being a dragon. And and again, these are crossover sort of understandings to what uh, Atlantis brings forth that we'll get into um, later on, no doubt. And so you have Isaiah 6 as a if you take that back to Hebrew, the definition comes out as a fiery serpent, fiery six-winged serpent. And these were the watchers uh, of Genesis 6, and that if they were these serpent-like-looking gods, which we have depictions all over the world, and the kingships reflect beings that had serpent faces to look just like them in the beginning um, in the age of man— Then and they are the offspring of them, they tend to take on that look. And the connection back to dinosaurs is these seraphim uh, seem to have had the dinosaurs ruling the earth in the gap uh, that we're talking about in Genesis 1-1-1-2 before they're destroyed, however they're destroyed, whenever they're destroyed. And they are this reptilian type of being. And as we're learning now, from science is many of these and maybe most of them weren't just the sort of lizard forms of skins, but they had feathers. And so when you look at a serpent angel with six wings, you have a feathered serpent or a feathered dragon, just as Quetzalcoatl and Uh. uh, many of the Central and South American gods were the plume serpent or the seraphim. And the same gods, just as the Nagas have the same look in the subcontinent of India. Uh, and you have sort of consistency of the serpentine imagery that goes to the gods who are the watchers and to the first kings and the offspring who were the Nephilim of Genesis 6. And this is consistent all around the world. And so if they were ruling the world before it was destroyed, they probably created beings after their own image
0: uh it,
2: okay that uh Gary, you're really putting a lot of these you know uh world uh cultural concepts into in, in perspective for us so it, at what points do we find uh atlantis being created you know Where is it located? What what was the original? uh, uh, What was going on in the original Atlantis? Uh, Let's recreate that time period.
4: It's a a good question for sure and a good point. And um, just before I move on, if somebody wanted a step-by-step layout of what I talked about with the renewal of the earth, again, get a hold of me. I've got a good document that I send out to a lot of people. And you just have to ask for it, I'll send it to you. Atlanta, uh, there's two schools of thought on when Atlantis fits in. Uh, Atlantis is thought to be uh, a civilization, and one of the civilizations before the flood in the same period as we would have had Noah and Seth and Cain and Tuval Cain and this, the the descendants of both genealogies coming down from Adam through Cain and Seth. And then the other thought is is that it is an older civilization, but also within the polytheists and particularly the, the theosophic and Gnostic belief is that this older civilization or this parent civilization to the four, seven, nine, or even more civilizations that were uh, before the flood Uh, and i think it's probably four or seven as opposed to larger numbers but there's different accounts so i'm just throwing all of those out would be uh the parent civilization would be lemuria so is lemuria the same as atlantis and atlantis is just a uh, a continuation or is lemuria the civilization that populates these four to other nine civilizations around the world not real sure on that there's nothing definitive on that but i think lemuria if it did exist if there was that single parent one is different than atlantis and so i personally with my research i look at atlantis as being the time of noah you know back to the time of um, jared uh, and Noah, because in enoch we have first Enoch we have the giants being created in the generation of Jared the Bible says in the time and the days of Noah that's not a contradiction because Noah lived during the same period that Jared did because of the crossover of their long lives it's pretty easy to have a several hundred year crossover to examine the chronology and the genealogies and so I, I would place Atlantis back then. And the reason why I, I would place Atlantis then is, is I compare the Atlantean account to the Genesis 6 account. And Genesis 6, and noting that Genesis 6 is the preamble to the flood. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4, then you get Noah's commission in his account, and then you get uh, the, the flood story. So, the giants, or the Nephilim, as giant goes back to Hebrew, nephil, I am male plural again, uh, um, are seemingly interconnected as the cause of the what I think there's violence and things going on before, but they're the key accelerator that is going to bring on the flood. And it's no coincidence that they would be right at the preamble to the start of the flood story which continues through you know chapter 7 and into chapter 8 to, to a certain degree now in genesis 6 you have the sons of god who have already talked about as being the watchers and the seraphim angels and the same watchers as daniel 4 going to human females and producing giants which are nephilim as their offspring and they were the mighty ones and the men of renown of the earth and of course everybody knows Mighty ones, which is Giborim, Gibor, I am male plural again, AH would be the female plural, uh, Giborah, or Guborah to be more accurate. And so you have these beings that are known as the mighty ones uh, and the men of renown, and renown um, goes back to uh, the word which means fame. And jointly to Shem, I which is again the i am is the plural um, which means heavenly or heavenly ones and you get that word uh, shemaim which is used in genesis 1 1 in the word god created heaven so these are the ones who are from heaven or the offsprings of the one from heaven and so these are the demigods of the ancient world and demigod as you define that and or the heroes out of ancient uh, Greece, and we're talking about Atlantis, so using the same analogous terms here, a uh, hero was a demigod and a giant and defined as the offspring of a human female and the gods. And that's why in some of the English translations, you won't see uh, mighty ones, uh, but you, let, let's say... In some of the more modern English ones, it would use a hero's of old. So, again, the same term that is going to be used for uh, the offspring of the second-tiered gods of Olympus, like Zeus, uh, for example, or Zeus, as some people pronounce it, um, and human females. Now, what's interesting about all of that, and of course, they produced from Zeus, he would have produced like Hercules and Theseus and Perseus and famous heroes like that. Poseidon, who is also, I think, Iapetus in Greek mythology because the different variations of the stories tell a different story, even though you can look at some of the genealogical charts and it has Iapetus as coming from you know different gods. But that's not as being created from different gods, but that's not unusual in any of the other pantheons around the world, like in Egypt where you've got several accountings and they don't always mesh up, right? Because they're used in different cities and kind of like even though they're part of the overall same civilization, those were city-states that operated in, uh, independently of each other, and they tended to write maybe not exactly the same versions. And so Poseidon or Iapetus goes to a human female, Clymene or Cleido, again depending on whether or not which uh, version you're you're reading, and they produce ten Titan, and Titan can mean a god or a hero. Uh, and the Titan generally is the lower gods, so not the parent gods. Um, ten Titan uh, kings, and this includes Atlas of of Atlantis. And so you have not just one island civilization, but you have ten parts to this empire. That would include North Africa, parts of Europe, let's say into Portugal and Spain, mm-hmm. into Uh, Central and South America, into uh, Ireland, into England, and composing 10. I detail all of that in my book, but just to give people an idea, that this is a very, very large antediluvian civilization. And when I say antediluvian, I mean before the flood. Mm -hmm. And so you have the same story being told in the Atlantis creation of the civilization – with a god or a fallen angel going to a human female creating the giants or the Nephilim, and they become the demigods and the kings of the antediluvian world and they rule over humankind so all of that suggests that genesis and the atlantean and greek accounts are talking about the same parallel story one from a monotheist lens one from a polytheist lens and the time frame would be similar from that sort of accounting and connecting the dots. What's interesting though, is in the Atlantis account that Plato writes, and there are several, there are other accounts, but he writes the two most famous ones, and uh, they are Critias and Timaeus. And Plato recounts um, Solon, who is, you know, sort of uh, a few generations uh, before Plato, because uh, Plato lived in about 427 to 347 BC, but Solon, he re, he he's going to write about Solon's meeting with the Egyptian priests, uh, and where he reads off of the columns in Say's Egypt of the Atlantean, and what uh, is interesting, which goes back to this sort of gap theory and these two different types of flood things that are going on that Second Peter talks about. Uh, in chapter three, verses four through six, is that the Egyptians tell Solon that, uh, you know, you remember one deluge, but there have been many uh, catastrophes and floods, and their catastrophes would include water and fire, and they kind of alternate. And so when you had 2012, for example, with uh, celestial procession and, and that clock that keeps counting. And we started into this new age. And, and one of those ages is 2,360 years. That's the age of Aquarius as people understand it in, in the new age movement is that begins this new age of over 2000 years, where the world is going to be destroyed on this with fire, uh, which is again, very, very similar to what the end times uh, process, Prophecies around the world, including the Bible, we'll talk about, but it doesn't say when. Um, so it wasn't going to happen immediately in 2012. And you know, by using that size of time count, it could take a thousand years or almost two thousand years, right? So we don't know right. when that's going to happen. But they talk about more than one deluge, which is now sort of brings back that thought: is Atlantis older than what is being talked about in in um, in how I compare Genesis 6 with the Atlantis story, or is that that parent civilization that the Theosophists like to call uh, Lemuria? So, sort of an interesting uh, an accounting coming out of uh, Plato's account. And uh, again, you know, if anybody wants the the true accounts and the most details of Atlantis, read Timaeus or Critias. Um, but uh, I, I always sort of look to Plato as the the true source uh, that sort of gives um, more details which are more relevant to uh, connecting dots around the world. And what's interesting about um, the Plato account is, is he's taking this as history. And then people that follow him, including his, uh, the students that he mentored and later historians, they will now cite Plato's account not as legend, but as history. And so in the ancient world, this was understood as an actual fact, as is the flood considered an actual uh, fact. And as Josephus will talk about the flood and all of these ancient historians that documented it as fact. So we have to be careful with, I would almost say, propaganda that we get out of science today of of how they readily dismiss everything in the past. And come up with theories that I'm not so sure stand the test of time or the scrutiny. But again, I'm going down another rabbit hole. But so that's uh, how I arrive at uh, what Atlantis is and uh, how old it is. Yeah, and
2: Gary, just you can take a uh, you can take a break first, so I can get a uh, catch your breath or uh, have drink of water but y you yeah know, listeners uh if you like what you know the information that uh, uh gary's been uh, presenting you can go to his website genesis six the the number six uh you know, conspiracy dot com and uh, you know his book the genesis six conspiracy r- really is uh i, I, I it's it, it's really uh well-documented, uh, researched, uh, just fascinating read. It uh, was com- compressing thousands of years of all these um, uh, societies and how they have been affected by giants and uh, a-, a lot of the philosophies that came from uh these very early uh, uh cultures and uh, how how they impact or you know how they're impacting us e- even today with uh, you
3: know,
2: uh you, know, you know you do cover nazis and uh some of the really bad theories that are or philosophies that are out there so it's yeah this, i i really enjoy this book. Uh it it, it I can't recommend it a, enough. It, it it's terrific. And it, you know Gary, you, you know you, you've been making so many um, distinctions w- w- with all these um you know, helping us to understand uh where you're getting this information uh and you know, an interesting point that you do bring up is uh, like the uh book of enoch uh is more specific about atlantis but the traditional uh biblical canon really doesn't mention it but you, know, you argue for a uh that in the book of Isaiah that there is a reference to Atlantis um with uh, the the it's an anti or uh, yeah anti-deluvian a uh, depiction of Atlantis, uh, can, can you tell us about that distinction uh, between Isaiah and s- some of the Apocrypha books? And you know, you've also given us uh, like Job and uh, some of the Noah information as well. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, you can get. A larger understanding of the flood account and the lattice account by reading Enoch and then mm-hmm. thinking, I like to verify everything through what's written in the Bible. And so typically the flood is just a, you know, water's coming up from the earth and rain coming down from the sky. But as you get into other chapters and psalms, and I have a full chapter of this in, in my book, is is there are more descriptions of, of the earth being turned over and and drained and upheaval that's going on—that it relates more to the Enoch description of a flood that is a conflagration of catastrophes that was part of it. And I, I'll cover all of that off. So, and people are just looking for evidence of a flood as a straight flood, but. If you understand that, as it's also told in all the other accounts around the world of the flood, it's more than just a flood. Yes, there's Mm -hmm. a flood, but there's volcanoes and earthquakes and continents going up and continents going under the sea. And it starts to answer all of these questions about why you have all of these underwater cities that are of an age that, you know, just don't line up with secular science. But the verse I'm referring to where I think it actually talks about Atlantis is Isaiah 23. Right. And it's talking about Tyr, uh, the city of tyrannous destruction. But this is one of those, um, what I call dual prophecies in uh, the Bible. And it has a couple of uh, markers to, to know when we're having a dual prophecy. So, one, it has. Has an understanding that connects back to prehistory so that we understand what's going on in prehistory. The second one is it has a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled um, in the not so distant future. and in this case uh, the destruction of Tyr which you know comes at the hands of the king of Babylon uh, in, in, Babylon's, in Nebuchadnezzar's romp to overthrow all the civilizations uh, of the known world of that time, and to consolidate it all under one empire, then you have a connection to the end time. And so I think Isaiah 23 is one of those dual prophecies, and the classic example of one of those dual prophecies that has prophetic allegory in it, and that's the other marker or concept that I'll define in a minute would be um, Isaiah 14. Uh, which actually begins in isaiah thirteen and uh, another one would be ezekiel twenty eight and ezekiel thirty two and i'm just starting to put out a three part series on facebook on ezekiel thirty two to explain that and the yeah. prophetic allegory part comes in is is in the some of the details that you get in this prophecy that's going to happen on the short it doesn't always match and, Again, I don't believe that the Bible is in, in contradiction. So when I look at it as a greater understanding, as in, let's say, Isaiah 14, where you have clearly a description of uh, Lucifer that comes out of Hebrew as Halel, and I prefer to call el or Satan, um, about his fall from grace and his rebellion in the ancient world, you also have el, which is H-E-L-E-L, which is an allegory. Arriving off of H E Y L E L, for Satan, which I think was his original name, particularly because it ends in el, as most all job names are, like Michael or Gabriel or Es-E-Z-O, um and you can oh. name them all. Uh, okay. the ones that aren't might have right, just one of those sort of standards. That so, makes sense. You know, Uriel, Raphael, go on and on and on, right? Uh, Ariel. And so uh, I think this is his original name. But so you have also in their hell or the king of Babylon, and, and it's going to talk about, uh, you know, his fall and also the Assyrian, which is another antichrist. Uh, um, Reference to the to the end time, but within this, it's called talking about a man. So a lot of people will look at uh, Isaiah 14 and say, "Well, there's more than one." And, and and or Satan is a Nephilim and or a man. It's talking about two different individuals. It's talking about an allegorical uh, aspect to the end time of this king of Babylon and Assyrian, and to the future king of Babylon who's going to be. T- actually nebuchadnezzar who's going to destroy Tyr in this case and you also have hellel in isaiah 14 12 as the original rebellion and all of these Raphaim kings are doing is setting up and doing uh, the organizational structure of the watchers and continuing in in the rebellion and so i know that's a whole mouthful in terms of there but i just want to give people an idea what i'm talking about when i say a dual prophecy so that when we talk of Look at some of these uh, terms that are being talked about in um, in the destruction of Tyr. It says, Be silent, uh, you people of the island, and you know, you merchants of Sidon, which is Tyr. And so it's talking about an island. And so Tyr isn't technically an island, it's kind of a land based thing that has a bridge attached to it, but not, it's not this typical island. That you would have out in the middle of the sea, right? It's basically right along shore, very well protected and thought was impenetrable and then until Nebuchadnezzar comes along and takes care of that. And so this is the city of revelry, the old, old city. And anytime in the Bible you have old, old, or times of old, or former age, as I was alluding to early on in the show, and there's other terms, these are all antediluvian terms or into a former age, which could be another age in behind. And typically, the age before the flood is one age, and the age after the flood, the post-diluvian age, is another epoch or age as, as the Bible lays it out. So, tear wasn't there before, but it's being talked about as it is. So, I think tear is an allegory for uh, Atlantis, and it's the bestower of crowns whose merchants are princes and traders renowned on the earth that term renowned that's the mm-hmm. same term that is being used for the men of renown right mm-hmm. um, of uh, of heaven uh, Shem and Shemaim and you have the bestower of crowns well the bestower of crowns is. In the greek mythology where all of these ancient kings are awarded their kingship just as they are awarded kingship in the sumerian which would be an identical uh type of pantheon just in a different civilization at the same time where you have at nippur the king being awarded their kingship as part of the ring of kings or lord of the rings as tolkien will write about that in his famous trilogy um, who are going to rule the earth? So again, we have these anti-deluvian terms that are thrown in, and it doesn't mean that tier didn't set up, let's say, transplanted or branch kingdoms for their trade and had rulers ruling over there. Like the Libyans, for example, would have been one of those areas. Um, but the 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 meaning to the words are more to what happened in the end time in in prehistory so you have an understanding what's going on just as this is going to happen in the end time with these 10 kings being set up who are going to be traitors of the babylon um, empire that antichrist is going to take over at the midpoint of the last seven years and they're going to go you know grow rich through Babylon. So again, just throwing out a few examples of where this is now also talking about details that it's going to be about the city of Rome in the end time. And then it says, the Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all the glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. So again, that's talking with antediluvian terms with the pride because the giants before the flood they grew evil and they actually rebelled against the gods and were trying to enslave and destroy humankind which is part of that overall uh, plan that they have so that humans are not going to be raised above the angelic realm in the future time and so they overreach which is where the word hubris comes from which goes back to what happened with these heroes uh, at the time of the flood and they're overreach and so this is the pride, and sin is pride, and they became sinful, and they rebelled against God. So again, all of the imagery and the language is talking about prehistory for understanding, and they're doing the same thing after the flood with the Rephaim kingships and the empire. So Nebuchadnezzar is the first start of the famous four that are going to be talked about in prophecy that's going to have Babylon first, Persia, Medes, second, Greece, third, Rome, and then for the end time, the revived Roman Empire, which Antichrist is going to come along. And then before that, you had Assyria and uh, Egypt, all kings beforehand. And so, again, to understand what's going on in, in prehistory and in prophecy, you need to understand the players in the Bible and define things within the Bible so that you can understand what they're talking about. And so, you know, it says God has made all of the uh, all of the I uh, remember the kingdoms tremble, mm-hmm. and so this island is is destroyed by by God and the storms and what happens the, uh, the conflagration of catastrophes. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy it that way. He actually invades it tears it down and burns it so again the details don't line up so it's either the bible is either in contradiction or it's talking about that dual prophecy aspect and of course when you look at babylon in the end time which is another dual prophecy in jeremiah 50 and 51 you have this destroyer who is connected to antichrist and i won't go down that rabbit hole right now that back to Abad Napoleon and Azazel, uh, but also understand Antichrist is the one who destroys Babylon in Revelation seventeen at about the midpoint of the last seven years.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, you know, Gary, what you know, the passage from Isaiah twenty-three that you, know, you uh, read and. Uh, Dissected for us, uh, you know. There's that island right there at the beginning of, of the passage in uh, chapter 17. Uh, yeah, I I missed that the first time I read uh, the book of Isaiah. It, it's you know, just like little things like that where you know you're uh, close reading and then the uh, um, convincing arguments you make for you know the case that you know was you know talking about at, at Atlantis since it it does clearly mention uh you know uh, island and tier was you know uh place i i think says so, a landlocked uh country so it, you know, it 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 can't be both so it yeah, yeah it it was uh, can't be both yeah, it, yeah you're so making there's an a,
4: allegory going on there right yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, and you know i you know I just wanted uh you know to sh- sh- you know give you an example of how y- your writing's really put into perspective you know the interdiluvian world and you know and you know you even go into the um like the Zeptepi um you know You know, know, discussing Ethiopia, I I mean, you know, that really doesn't come up in
3: uh,
2: uh, the Bible all all that much, Uh, but, you know, the African uh, countries uh, did play a role in the, uh, you know, a post-Diluvian world.
4: uh,
2: uh,
4: Yeah, Absolutely.
2: and, and and it was an important it was a very important uh, uh, uh role too but uh, where does that yeah you, know, you draw our attention to uh, that cult of bulls you, know, you mentioned like there was a little bit of a rebellion getting started and the cult of bulls was another one of those uh uh uh, c- ceremonial practices that kind of started pushing a- Atlantis from the like more advanced, uh, culture to, uh, some where we're starting to descend into chaos. Uh, you, you, uh, what, what do we have going on there with the cult of bulls?
4: Sure. And, uh, uh, let me just connect some of the dots on what okay. you were just talking about, and then we'll talk about the bull call. Yeah, please so, do, because I, uh, I I, stuff, to I love a what a you're brought up about. That's okay. I love to go all over the place, too. So we make a good pair that way. Yes. Uh, so you're talking about Ethiopia and Antioch. Uh, and and if people remember what I said earlier, part of the Atlantean Empire was in North Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's important about that is, is that Ethiopia, as where it is wasn't located where it was today it was the north africa right and part of and you know the old uh, spelling of it was Antiops. and so this was part of the atlantean empire uh and it's and again this is coming out of the greek uh recollection of history so that you start to connect you know more of the dots and borosis uh who had access to uh, the the temple tablets of history before the flood um, is the one who wrote Babylonica for the Greeks in the time of Alexander so that that history wouldn't be lost, but a lot of his works were lost anyways by berossus But Barossus called, you know, looked at Babylon um, as the city of the end time that I referred to that will ultimately see it um, take shape as, as allegorically. Um, but berossus looked at Babylon as being the first city. of all, well, Babylon isn't created till after the flood, right? Either at Babel, as we understand it in in um, Genesis. Although the location probably isn't where Babylon was. That's more down by Eridu, as the Enmerkar example of Sumerian history talks about the same Babel event takes place. But where I'm going with this is, is that he said Babylon was the first city. City of Cities, an anti antediluvian city, which was Atlantis. And so, as I connected Atlantis in the previous rant in terms of, of uh, tier, Atlantis, Babylon, and Babylon of the end time, you have again this secular uh, history written by Barosus that connects perfectly through with what the Bible is talking about. And so. Uh, I just wanted to let everybody know that, in, in in the book, I'll not only talk about what the Bible says, is I'll bring in um, sources from um, historians, uh, from secret societies, from uh, different legends, different religions, and I'll, I'll let them all tell their own story and then show you how that compares to what it says in, in the Bible. So uh, I don't want to manipulate the words, I like to let them speak for themselves, because things sort of uh blend very well if you just sort of let things read and particularly if you just let the bible read it, it will it will tell it so one story for you if, you if you let it and so when we talk about the bulk cult i mean it sort of has to do with that astrology aspect and when the zodiac is invented and that's all antediluvian and in two different accounts uh you get where the zodiac is created there's an enochian account that he's the one who creates the zodiac and creates sunwork and creates the bulk cult, and develops the seven sciences that he learns from his father, Cain, who learned it from uh, his father, Adam, who learned it from uh, God while in Eden. And he develops it in the seven sacred sciences that are going to mesh with the additional illicit knowledge that the fallen angels are going to provide him and humankind to accelerate it to a level that's going to bring the world to its knees and bring on the flood. And so, from a non-biblical source, if we're looking at in terms of how that that sort of transpires, is is you now have Atlantis as the source of creating this and. Uh, Uh, astrology and creating this technology and you know according to plato they were you know the greatest uh engineers and architects and would have built all of these great megalithic structures that are around the world including the pyramids including stonehenge and of course egypt was part of the uh empire uh, part of Zeptepi the first time so just again connecting some more dots and or the biblical and or enochian understanding is, is Enoch was part of that. What is most likely is, is that the polytheist tradition adopts Enoch as the one bringing of this knowledge, and he's raised, raised to like a Mercury-type level as bringing knowledge to humans. And I'm not going to go too far into that one because we're, we want to get to the, the cult which was the question. And so the Taurus is part of the Zodiac, which comes – you know, which comes out of this bull cult, sun worshiping,
3: um,
4: uh, a mix of religion that that Enoch creates and is also utilized by Atlantis and all the ancient civilizations. You have this bull cult that goes all around the world, whether or not it's the calf or the Apis uh, bull cult in Egypt, uh, the bull cult in Atlantis, which it's very very famous for. You have the bull cult of Canaan. And it comes from the age of Taurus, that two thousand three hundred and sixty year period that we talked about. So it can stretch both before and after
3: the flood. Okay. And
4: uh, what's 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 interesting about, about that is that you have that same sort of consistency to what's going on in the in the ancient world. And also understand that the Minotaur, which is part of Greek mythology as well, and the uh, labyrinth which is you know a big part of the mystical and polytheist religions um he was a bull that was presented to king minos um and then, then um minos is you know he he uh, crosses the gods and you have the creation of this uh, minotaur which is you know a, a bull's head in this human form and uh, that the sacrifice um people and young people and babies to this, to feed this minotaur in the, in the labyrinth. So again, I think think it's just, again, telling another story about the bull cult, um, from, from, from a Greek side of it. But this bull cult is, is the religion that that we know of. That is also the sun worshiping religion. And it goes back to both Atlantis and or Enoch.
0: Wow.
2: Okay. Um, So, Gary, what happened with – how how does the bull cult um, take us to the uh, corruption that we're going to continue to experience throughout history, like with – Oh yeah, uh, you know, uh, you know Merovingians or some of the King Arthur, you know, the the people mm-hmm. uh, that you cover, or you know, you know, uh, some so some people, some of the cultures you cover uh, later. The House Stewart and yeah.
4: so the uh, the organizational structure, which is very very important to understand in prehistory and the world that we have today, it includes. Um, the kings and the nobility who come from the original kings,
3: uh,
4: which is the ruling class and the religion that they impose and, and within the polytheist pantheons around the world and they're all the same pantheon, just different, different vernacular names for the same gods,
3: hmm, okay.
4: all with the same root that goes back before. And so this is this is that sort of bull cult of the organizational structure that crosses the flood and becomes part of the Raphaim kingships, which is, again, Raphaim, if people aren't familiar with that term, I should have explained it a little bit earlier uh, in the show when I brought it out. The word only goes back to Nephilim three times in, in the Bible. That's in Genesis 6 where they're created and the Numbers 1333 in the bad report where seems like there's an embellishment that these are the descendants of giants. Giants is Nephilim, that the Anakim are their descendants. It's not that the Anakim aren't giants. It's just that it's an embellishment to take it back to the Nephilim before the flood in terms of how I would view that phrase. All the other times where it has giant in the Old Testament, it goes back to Rephaim. So Rephaim are the giants after the flood. Nephilim are the giants before the flood. And it denotes something significant. Uh, and distinct from them. And I think it's got a lot to do with Genesis 6-3 where uh, their life is limited uh, as opposed to they had, uh, you know, they they were basically a god in a body, uh, physical body, and uh, that would live on forever. And God stepped in and said, no, that's not going to happen. The body's not going to live forever. And so that's why I, over time, life goes back to, you know, to a limit of 120 years. So this is that, that religion that is going to be part of all of the kingships and the dynasties and the bloodlines as they come down through history and that organizational structure where you have this feudal class with all of the nobility being the bloodlines of the Raphaim after the flood and the Nephilim before the flood. And all the Adamites are the poor and the ignorant and are to be there for slaves and to be abused, to use the sacrifices. To do whatever they want with because they're inferior because they don't have the bloodlines that go back to the gods and so you'll see the vocal imagery come down just as you will with the serpentine imagery and the lion imagery um, and the unicorn imagery come down with uh, these bloodlines throughout history and will always be part of the ruling class because it denotes uh-huh. uh, taciturn uh, understanding of their history and their genealogies and so a classic example of that rolling forward and then i'll work it back is is i mentioned the minotaur uh a few minutes ago and with the merovingians who believe they have the bloodlines that go back to the nephilim or the raphaim or both because we don't know exactly how giants show up after the flood. They either survive or they're recreated. So their belief system is, is that they would have probably survived and they would take their bloodlines right back to the original Nephilim before the flood. And so they have their legend or their history cloaked in an allegory where uh, their bloodline comes back from a human female mating with a quinitar. And a quinitar is this bull being that is very, very similar to the Minotaur. And I think this is some sort of, uh, you know, just a, a, an allegory that goes back with Nephilim bloodlines. And if we look at what is going on in the bull cult of Canaan out of the Bible, that is the bull cult of El, who is the parent god, like Anu is of Sumeria and Kronos would be one of the, the parent gods of Greece and Ra uh, or Ptah would be one of the parent gods of uh, Egypt just to show the consistency in terms of that pantheon that I was talking about. He's the typical bull cult that produces Baal and Molak, which is all about the bull cult that Israel is going to be up against with the Rephaim that they are going to be at war with as they are trying to take the covenant land from the Rephaim who laid it in wait to try and destroy Israel from the face of the earth. So these just weren't nations. These were Rephaim nations and Rephaim hybrid giants with high technical weapons against this nation of slaves that didn't have factories or anything else and went up and defeated these giants, which could only be done through the power of God. Otherwise, they would have had no chance. And so this is the imagery and the bloodlines that all of the royal family take their genealogies back to is these mm-hmm. Raphaim kingships that developed after the flood. So when I talk about the Raphaim kingships, I did the major ones where I talked about Egypt with the pharaohs and right. uh, Assyria, which comes after that, and Babylon and Persia and all the way down through Greece and Rome and uh, the end time empire will all be the bloodline and the extension of the metallic empires talked about in Daniel 2 and the animal empires of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. And I think there's a dual prophecy there as well, with Daniel 8 also uh, reflecting uh, the seven that are talked about in Revelation 17. So, anyways, um, you have Egypt and Babel as being the two main pillars of civilization and religion. And empires after Babel, after the dispersion, and so Nimrod is going to continue developing the seven sacred sciences and the religion that Hermes had previously brought back to him. This is now I'm using Gnostic and uh, secret society history that Hermes discovers the two pillars of Enoch or Lamech. There's a few different legends on that, and discovers the knowledge of the ancient Enoch Atlantis Emerald Tablet. Uh, golden fleece, all these different terms refers to the same bank of knowledge that's hidden on pyramids in nine vaults stacked on top of each other, which had 36,525 books of knowledge which, of the ancient world and also of the religion. He takes that back to Nimrod at Babel, and they used that knowledge to build Babel City and Babel Tower, and are recreating the rebellion that took place after the flood within a hundred years that took place before the flood, and are rebelling against God again. And God disperses the language. And what's interesting about all of that is, in Acadian, the word Babel, babe l e l. Remember, I said is angel or God. That's right. That back to Hebrew, in. Akkadian, Bab, is gate, and L means the same thing. It could be spelled I-L or I-L-U or A-L. It's just transliterations in different languages of the same word. Uh, that is now, Bab is gateway or portal of the gods. And people think that they were trying to build a portal uh, to get the imprisoned angels out of the abyss out of Revelation 9. But I digress. Uh, back on topic. Uh, so the first two dynasties are in uh, in Shinar, which is Sumer, um, because that's where uh, um, Babel was built, and in Egypt, where Hermes goes with Mizrim and develops uh, the Egyptian society and where the pyramids are, because again, they're honoring and starting out from the ancient uh, facilities and monuments to their gods of their pantheon that they now implemented after the flood they're going to go back back to those holy places to create these uh, civilizations and societies and you also have after the flood these Aryans and or Scythians that are coming down from uh, the Scythia region where it is believed in um, legend and in, in other civilizations accounts and particularly Greek in this case, that these are the heroes, the giants that are somehow escape the abyss that they are imprisoned with after the flood to repopulate the earth. So that's one of the stories of how they might survive. And they're known as the Metani, which are the Aryan or the Maria Anu. Uh, anu is like Tuatha Danan or Danu that these are the tribes of Anu, and of course Anu is the father of the Anunnaki in the Sumerian tr- tradition, and of course the Tuatha and they're going to migrate up to uh, Sweden and Norway, and into Russia, and into Romania, and into Ireland, and into England, and be the blonde-haired and blue-eyed areas that the Nazis take themselves back to, and the red-haired Hazel-eyed ones that uh, the fairy people in Allegory, there's another rabbit hole I won't go down today, uh, take um, their uh, imagery back to. And so what's interesting about the red hair and the hazel eyes, these are the same hair colors that we find in skeletons that were discovered in North America and then more recently in Peru. And they all go back to scythia. So you have this sort of epicenter of giants spanning north and south and into the Middle East with the Mitanni and the Kassites, and they're going to produce the original purebred um, dynasties that are going to intermarry with Nimrod and then with Mizraim to create these hybrid dynasties, and they will continue to intermarry with these purebred dynasties to ennoble their bloodlines, because within the culture and cult of this world of nobility the your bloodlines and your genealogies the higher you fit in the hierarchy so they're always trying to continue to improve their genealogies and keep them as pure as possible and these are the royal families that will spread their dynasties around the world with a pure form of uh, the most pure blooded Female that they could because they start new dynasties with uh, matriarchy which is the fairy allegory and the dragon uh, side is, is the uh, patriarchy side so if you're following their allegory uh, fairy and dragon is very very important in understanding and conversely owl is the same as fairy and raven is the same thing as dragon and of course that all fits with the understanding of what these watchers were looking like serpent-like ones falcon or raven or bird like ones as in Anunnaki or in in Horus. And there's a few other ones as well, but the serpent ones are the most common. And so these are the kingships that spread around the world and the intermarriage that we see that happen right through history and continues to happen to this day. And they track their genealogies just as the Merovingians did. And so you have most of the Western royal bloodlines that are taking Uh, their bloodlines back to the Merovingians wherever they can because they were thought to be the most ennobled bloodline of that time. I don't know. I covered a lot of history there in in sort of a sweeping fashion, but...
3: Uh, Okay.
2: I I have a question. The the subtitle of uh, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy is How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind. Okay, uh, 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 the last couple shows we did, we had Scott Walter, who recently uh, became a Freemason, and on the episode – hopefully people are listening to our our show and will watch the uh, – You know, premiere of his Jack the Ripper episode on the replay uh, later tonight after we're off the air. But um, you know, one of the opening scenes, as either tonight or uh, last week's show, uh, it it, it was uh, a recreation of an initiation, and you know, Scott even discussed it with the. uh, uh uh presentation of the skull that is shown to the um initiate and uh, Scott said well it's supposed to symbolize you know to be humble and you know, uh it reminds you of your mortality and to make the most of your life um you know, okay so it if Yeah, this is kind of like a creepy uh, ceremony, but it it has a good message. Um, You know, it's being, uh, the the initiative was shown, uh, you know, reminded to be humble. Okay, you know, that uh, is a a recreation of Jesus uh, going into Jerusalem on the donkey. Uh, you You know, where's the, um like uh, the the secret society uh you know yeah, becoming you know, doing something evil with something like that and and we do uh actually have a question uh after my rant there so uh, uh maybe maybe we can actually, maybe take, maybe the can actually take the question Okay, Okay. Okay. there's Joe. Joe, you want to step Joe in wants, here uh, and ask Gary, a ask Gary a question?
5: Yeah, I sure do. Um, I came across your your radio show right now, The Corruption of Atlantis. And that was kind of disappointing to me because as a kid, I've always had an image of Atlantis as being uncorruptible. I've always had a vision of Atlantis either being a great city above the water Or it was a great city enclosed in a bubble below the uh, surface of the water, and it was technologically advanced. But they were advanced because, not, not because they were more intelligent than the normal human, but because they didn't have a lot of psychological problems. Their egos were in check, and as a result, they could see the forest for the trees, and they could advance themselves. So I wanted to find out um, how, from this particular guest, if he could sum it up, how was Atlantis corrupted?
4: Yeah, it's a very, very, very good question, and, again, that's one of
5: the reasons why
1: I like
4: to get my information uh, directly
1: from the best source. Wait, i, I got to interrupt here. If somebody, there's a big echo, so somebody has their the show running on in the background, and we're getting an echo because there's a six-second yeah, delay. Phone. It's my,
5: yeah, it's my phone. Um, I wish I could do something about it. Um, I'll see what I can do in about two seconds. Let's see if this works. It's it's better now. Is it better now?
3: uh, uh,
2: uh, uh, What you had before you said two seconds. Oh,
5: okay. (laughs) Let's see if I can fix this now. How's this?
2: The echo seems gone. Oh, okay. Uh, no, it's, it's there no, still. it's still there.
5: It's still there. Well, I'm right. that's about the best I can do. So uh, what I'll do, if you just the answer, uh, maybe, oh, no, you can't fix the echo that way. All right, um, put me on mute, and that should take care of it, and then you can give me the answer. Okay.
1: He's on mute. There we go. He's on uh, mute.
2: Okay, uh, get Gary, far
4: away. Okay. Yeah, so it's a very, very good question, because, you know, that's how Atlantis starts out, and that's how uh, Plato says it starts off, that they had this air of goodness, and they looked after the inferior, mundane human kind, and everything they did was good. But because the kings were offspring of gods and humans, is that they have this human component and over time the human component starts to infect the godly component which makes them become evil and they start this backslide into debauchery and violence and wars and slaughter and all sorts of horrific things that will bring them to the point of uh, rebellion and to the point where the gods have to bring on the flood, because they 're just the last cause of evil, and although they had this great technology and knowledge, they didn 't continue to use it in what is known as the white arts, but in the black magic, not the white magic but the black magic. I look at it as the same, but within polytheism, they look at uh, and you 'll know it as a good as a white witch or a dark witch or um, and on and on and on. They have this sort of dualist sort of understanding of, of, of the application of that knowledge. And so that's how they backslide into uh, from where they came from, is, is how Plato describes it. And I think that's just because of their pride just sort of overtakes, which is what we were talking about earlier in the show. Now, Mark was talking about uh, an initiation ceremony that's quite low level as people are being initiated into the lower levels of secret societies. So understand that these secret societies come out of this knowledge from Enoch in the Antediluvian Epoch. Enoch son of Cain, not Enoch son of Jared. There are two Enochs. And so they are going to develop secret societies to develop the knowledge. Uh, and they're going to develop the mystical religion to keep things in secret. So they're kind of the same sort of different arms of the same branch that Enoch is is developing. And so Freemasonry and all of their associated groups so they may sort of umbrella name, take their history all back to the same source before. Now, as we understand the infrastructure of the modern Freemasonic organization is you have a York Rite, and a Scottish Rite. And York Rite is the ancient organizational structure which has the three levels to adapt to adepthood. And uh, you learn that and you sort of climb the ziggurat or the pyramid of knowledge and initiations to become a third degree adept. The more common one that's understood in North America is the Scottish Rite, which comes in in about the 18, middle 1800s, where those three are split into 33 degrees. Now, in the initial ceremonies that you're being initiated to in Freemasonry, there's only one couple of qualifications that you need. One is you need to be invited to join. Uh, And typically, they're going to invite uh, people based on genealogies. Um, They may be very diluted genealogies, but typically, it's all on, on, you know, where some of your ancestors, Freemasons before, and what are their bloodlines. And new money, because they're going to be introducing new talent as well. And at the lower level, this is a business-orientated networking organization. They do charities. They do good things. And even Shriners have hospitals. So there's a lot of good that they use sort of out front in terms of the cloak. But with the curtain, as in The Wizard of Oz, but it's that wizard behind the curtain. And understand, wizard is a polytheist term for a priest in the religion. It's just an allegory, right? So whether or not it's Merlin or it's the Magi or it's the uh, wizards in, in Lord of the Rings, they're talking about the priests of polytheism. Now, until you become an adept at the third degree York right or the Scottish Rite, is you are considered mundane and inferior and not enlightened. And you are illuminated into the real mysteries at the adept level. So they are preparing you and brainwashing you as you're climbing the ziggurat, but you're still not considered worthy to be told the true secrets. So all of the allegories, all of the symbolisms, all of the narratives that they're teaching you at the lower level are not accurate. They may be at some superficial level but there's way deeper levels and you only learn that uh, at the adept level when you're now considered worthy to know the secrets and to participate in what they really want to do and what's really going on in terms of what they're planning and organizing and, and trying to do in terms of bringing on the end time because they want world government, they want the universal religion and they want to bring on a rendezvous with the God of the Bible so that they can win their freedom and live in their own realm just as what we talked about in Isaiah 14:12, where Lucifer wants to be like God, living in his own realm. That's what they're fighting for, because they know they can't defeat the impotent God in the world, even though they deceive their followers that they can't. Uh, it's the only way they're going to get them to follow them. But the angels, when they always knew they couldn't win, they were trying to just win a realm to live separately from God. Now, people entering in at the lower levels, they're not going to see anything that is going on at the adept level and higher and understand that in using that old system, the third degree is an adept that if you're going to oversee different lodges, you're going to be probably fifth degree and there are higher degrees yet. So I've heard of nine degrees. I'm not a Freemason. I'm not part of a secret society. So I have to gain my information through research and I also have heard there's even, Higher degrees. People who are pure bloods are initiated from childhood, and they are adepts by the time they are basically are eighteen to twenty years old. They may be called a thirty-second degree adept, but that's only because they're too young to receive the adept title, even though they have all of the qualifications, and may be even a higher third degree at that point in time. So, deaf understand part of the language, but the point of the matter is, is, is at the lower level it seems like a great organization. Behind the curtains are the wizards, and these are the same people that use an analogy and and to sort of bring about the uh, the terms. Is that they there are also the Rosicrucians? They are the Illuminati because the Illuminati are the illuminated level. The Rosicrucians is the crossroads organization to the pure bloods above them. So half the top half of the rows of crucians are pure blood. The lower half are uh, lower bloodline and newer in, initiatives that show talent. And they'll answer up to the Council of three, uh, the Committee of 300, which goes up to the Council of 33, which goes to the 13 families. And what's uh, important in, in sort of understanding what that hierarchy is, 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 is looking like is that Um, you have all of these other organizations around the world that will insert into them. So understanding that, uh, you have the creation of the Royal Society, which is the creation of modern science, as they they describe it. And so uh, the Royal Society is created by the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. And they call themselves the last of the sorcerers and wizards and the first of the scientists with, with that transition. If you understand their language you, and understand their structure, you understand what they're doing and what they're saying. So, yeah, I think people who are at the lower levels of the Freemasons uh, think that it is an absolutely terrific society. And the good that they do and how they benefit is all good. But once they swear their allegiance to Satan as an adept, everything changes, and now they're told the the truth hmm.
2: okay um yeah it did, yeah yeah that just seems a little um you know, contradictory with the founding of the free it, it, like the Templars which, which you know uh preceded the freemasons you know, because in uh, uh Scott's uh, Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers book and, and he spoke a, a little bit about the Talpiot tomb and it just seemed like the Templars had like some kind of uh, knowledge of, about Jesus that most uh, of us don't know uh, and and I,
4: well, I, yeah, it, it's just interesting Templars, Yeah, you're Templars, saying. Yeah. The Templars yeah, the t- were said to, to hold the secret. Mm-hmm. Right? And the secret is, is the secret to the genealogies of certain bloodlines. So, with the founding of the Templars, you have four very important people, and I won't go through all the names, but I'll give the most important ones. You have the who produced the Plantagenet You have The St. Clairs who produced the St. Clairs That go back to Rolo That go back to the Tuatha de Danann uh, The Arianeu that we talked about um, Earlier on in the show From Norway and they changed their names To St. Clair With the treaty After defeating the French You have De uh, Payon And you have De Bouillon Now, Anjou de Payan and de Bouillon all come from the area of rain in France. And all of these Templars, except for two which are Benedictine um, monks um, and who will also have uh, royal bloodlines, these are all sons of kings. These are ones that are going to take over thrones after a while. So this idea that the Templars were just poor monks Maybe some of them were with the two, but typically they're all going to have bloodlines and be second, third, and fourth sons if they're going to become in, into mixed into uh, the religious organizational structures, Christian or otherwise. And so these were all sons of kings. And Anjou de Payon and de Bullion take their bloodlines back to Dagobert, who is the last survivor of the Merovingians, who takes their. Uh, genealogies back to Nephilim and also to, at an intersection with King Aminabad, who marries a female by the name of Ergon from the Welsh dynasties, uh, the King Arthur dynasties, um, and interjects that bloodline in. And that bloodline, they say, is carrying the uh, bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene because Joseph of Arimathea, in their accounts, will take in the Da Vinci Code talks about this i know it's a fictional book but they're basing it on their beliefs takes josephes who is the third son uh, because jesus is said to have been rescued off of the cross before he died and then there's back to health and later he meets up with mary magdalene and they have three children other counts have more but three is the standard and josephes is the one who marries into the pentagons of of the, the Celtic kingship that produces the, uh, the King Arthur kingship that's the bloodline that crosses over so before Boulian goes over to uh, Jerusalem in 1090 he, he meets with the Calabrian which are part of the mystery school the Pythagorean mystery school that has ancient knowledge and building knowledge and again another rabbit hole we can't go down right now and he is going he has given instructions from their knowledge to uh, excavate at Jerusalem, which has been taken by the Crusaders. And what the Templars are doing, they're ex- excavating. And they're excavating for predetermined knowledge. And what, where the knowledge comes from is they take their bloodlines back to, uh, and I'm talking about the Bullion and the Van and the Anjou and the Muravinians and everybody else who's meshed into the Scion or grafting in of bloodlines back to this intermarriage of the princes of Jerusalem that escape out of Jerusalem at the time of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD and escape to Europe and they settle mostly in southwest France and parts of Spain where you have like the Cathars and the Albigensians and all of this sort of rebellious uh, nucleus that is going to uh, cause the Albigensian uh, uh, Inquisition that takes place in in, in medieval times And so uh, They take their Lineage of the princes of Jerusalem Back to the Essenes And the Essenes were in control Of the temp at the time Of its destruction And it's the Essenes Who they believed that they had information On that hid all of these Ancient genealogies And ancient knowledge that goes back To Heliopolis, back to Enoch Before the flood Um, and and is represented by the pearls of wisdom or the archives of the Masons. This is the knowledge and gold and treasure that they are going to bring back to Europe. So that's the secret that they're holding. And understand that the Templars are only monotheistic on the surface, but... At the core and at the adept level The ones run at the master level And the grandmaster level They are all adepts of Polytheism and mysticism And this organizational structure That they use comes back From the assassins who they were Working with in the Middle East When they were formed into an order In uh, 1099 And then formally in with a Bull status in 1128 And supported by Saint uh, uh, St. Saint Bernard Um, They bring back the assassins, which is out of the Sufis, because the mystical part of Islam, they bring back this organizational structure where they seem monotheistic at the surface, but they're polytheists underneath and actually Gnostics. So it's this Gnostic religion that they truly believe, and that's what the adepts actually worship, that is at the core of the Knights Templar, which is why Gnosticism is the religion of the secret societies, whether or not it's. Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry the Illuminati any of these groups and Gnosticism is the religion that produces Theosophy which is was designed to be the bridge to bridge science and religion in the end time and then branches off into New Age with the advent of the alien phenomena. <laughs> okay
2: uh, uh, uh I I don't know what to say about that. You know, it's kind of uh, brought us up to uh, to today and what you know, all, all these different philosophies. I mean, probably just offended a whole bunch of our listeners too, but um, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you, you do. No, it's it's true, but you know, Gary, Gary does make a, a really good point of you know just drawing a, a, a line that links all all these uh different um uh philosophies together.
4: What I'm saying is they just have a different belief system than Christians do. Yeah. They have a different religion. That's all I'm saying.
2: No, and and, and, they,
4: and they and they fully admit that
2: yeah and and that that gets into uh, you know, like the uh a, a, a alien stuff that yeah you know, that's a, a, almost a religion on it, uh, of its own
3: it is yeah
4: yeah and the question gets to be is you know who are the aliens right so you know are they actually beings from other planets are they uh, demons, as some people think on the Christian side, or are they fallen angels, or are they actually beings that um, were created before the flood? Because we have this rich history of all of the amazing type of beings that are created before the flood. You know, everything from centaurs, uh, which were sentient thinking beings and actually taught the heroes uh, knowledge in the Antediluvian Epoch, and you know you can go on and on and on all these different types of beings i also had the little people which are the elementals um which were in basically divided into three classifications and one of them is the ugly ones which has the gnomes in which has has you know as a gray gnome that has flying machines and technology that comes through portals that kidnaps people and i have descriptions of this in my book that have people wanted to read it and they didn't know they were reading a fairy abduction. They would swear it was a great alien abduction because they're described exactly the same thing. So if you are a proponent and the polytheists are, the mystics are that not only did the giant survive, the, but many of these other creations did. And there's a, a lot of theories as to how that would have happened, whether it's, in the Earth with the hollow Earth theory or cities under the Earth or off the Earth uh, in um, clouds, just as the centaurs were created in clouds and possibly spaceships, or that they survive somehow on other arc. As so many of the accounts, whether it is the epic of Gilgamesh, which is talking about uh, um, Pishtan and or Zayazudra, who is two-thirds god and one-third uh, human, and this whole family was the same thing. These are, this is the Nephilim survival story, just as Deucalion, which is thought to be the Greek Noah and Pyrrha. Um, Deucalion is the son of Prometheus, which makes him a Nephilim as well. So this is a Nephilim survival story. So there's all of these different accounts that suggest that perhaps them and Bigfoot and all of these other beings <laughs> were helped by the gods or the fallen angels to survive the flood right? And that's how they're showing up today. What we do know is, is, from a Christian perspective, and what I think is, is that we are going to see these aliens as part of the end time deception. And so we better be, from as a Christian perspective, well versed in scripture so that we're not going to be deceived. But when it comes down to Basically, what most of the world believes, at least at the important ruling class level, is there's two belief systems. There's a polytheism belief system, and there's a monotheistic belief system. And I know there are uh, atheists as well, but that is just another extension of polytheism. They just haven't looked behind the curtain yet. Okay.
2: (laughs) All right, Gary, we're... Down, yeah, uh, you, know, you did give us a great lead into tomorrow night's uh, show with uh, uh, Marla Ventura, and she's going to be talking about gnomes and fairies and that kind of, uh, uh, you know, the little people stuff. So, yeah, you know, uh, so so thanks for that plug. But yeah, uh, you know, we we have like yeah you know, approaching five minutes, and I don't want the uh, blog talk, English robo babe to uh, be another person mad at me since she is becoming AI. Uh, uh, Can you tell us your uh, website? Do you have uh, some conferences, appearances, anything like that uh, coming up? Um,
4: No conferences over the summer. Um, Still, trying to confirm uh, a couple in the fall. The only one I've got confirmed uh, is next March in in Atlanta, but that's a long ways off, and that's with the um, Freedom Radio Group and then Garcia. So nothing on, on the schedule to be speaking in public uh, at this point in time. Um, uh, but I continue to put out uh, information on my Facebook site uh, on a regular basis. As I mentioned earlier, I've started a uh, three-part series on Ezekiel 32, and I've got a lot of interesting um, commentaries on giants and secret societies and stuff, so um, go there and go to one of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy pages that will have all those different blogs that I've done over the last three or four years.
2: Okay, and your website is genesis6conspiracy.com? Genesis,
4: yeah, wwwgenesis dot someruticsconspiracy.com and on that website you've got a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters so you can get a good feel for my book and there's a email contact there so if you wanted some information on what I was talking about uh, earlier in the show with um, the uh, Genesis 1-1 to 1-2, Renewal of the Earth, uh, the difference between Days 4 and 6 in Eden, or if you wanted some interesting information on some of these secret societies, whether it's the Rosicrucians or it's the Templars or the Cross of Lorraine, I've got a nice three-part series on, on that. Um, just tell me the subject area. I'll send you the document. Okay. And you
2: know, you're... You know, with the three minutes left, you know, I, I, I really do find your book, uh, the Genesis Six Conspiracy, uh, fascinating read. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, these aren't just your opinions. You have a hundred pages of endnotes. Uh, it's you meticulously research these subjects and. It's all documented at the uh, end of the book.
1: Yeah, I want yeah, I I to jump to, in if I uh... can, Mark. Uh, let, okay. let, let me interrupt. <laughs> um, I've read the book twice, and it's the kind of book that you are constantly going to be finding new things to think about, to ponder over, mm-hmm. and and to challenge your belief system and that's a good thing and and the 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 notes and the accuracy and the meticulousness with which he has written this book and how he is how he has strung stuff together so you actually understand what's going on is just phenomenal it's It's the kind of book you can read over and over again and always get something wonderful out of and and i I loved it too.
3: Yeah. I, oh, thank I you. And
4: I wanted to be transparent in my sources, so that's why I put so many endnotes. And I get a lot of comments, you know, from people saying that is a huge bibliography there, and <laughs> they've added a lot of books on their own because it's all about getting information out there. So it's it's not about anything else other than here's here's what I my research says, and you can go verify things for yourself if you like.
2: Yes. Okay. So. Hey uh, Barbara, how about uh, we're, we're getting pretty close to the end. Uh, should, should we just wrap now?
1: I think it's it's, it's you you've got less than a minute, so I would say good night. Yeah. Uh, uh,
2: okay. Hey, uh, you have a show tomorrow night, right?
1: I do. I do with Marla Ventura. Yes.
2: Right. Uh, okay, and. Okay, we'll we'll see everyone uh, Monday and Tuesday of next week as well. Uh, thank you, Gary, and, you know, uh, might as well uh,
4: end it now. Sure, and thank you for having me, and uh, I Please really come- enjoyed the discussion tonight, and hopefully the audience did as well.
2: Please come back.